I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is poetry and my guests today are all remarkable poets, writers and teachers. We will be hearing readings from these poets and talk about the role of poetry in our lives and our communities. In studio with me today are Brittany Cordero-Done, Todd Robinson, Matt Mason and Steve Langan. Brittany Cordero-Done is the author of the collection Wingmakers, published by Pinion Publishing in 2015. And in the history of the University of Nebraska is the youngest author to have a full-length collection published. In 2016, her work was nominated for a Pushcart Prize, and her poetry is found or is forthcoming in Silver Birch Press, Peacock Journal, Pantheon Magazine, Pinion Review, and other literary journals. Known locally as the Old Market Poet, she is often set up with her Corona 3 folding typewriter in Omaha's Old Market District, sharing her work with others. Todd Robinson teaches in the Writer's Workshop at UNO and conducts writing workshops in the community through several local arts organisations. His poems have recently appeared in such magazines as Sugar House Review, House Guest, and A Dozen Nothing. He has one book of poetry to his name and is fast closing in on the second. Matt Mason has won a Pushcart Prize and two Nebraska Book Awards, was a finalist for the position of Nebraska State Poet, and organised and run poetry programming with the US Department of State in Nepal, Romania, Botswana, and Belarus. He has over 200 publications in magazines and anthologies, including Ted Kuz's American Life in Poetry and Garrison Keillor's Writer's Almanac. His most recent book, The Baby That Ate Cincinnati, was released in 2013. Matt lives in Omaha with his wife, the poet Sarah McKinstry-Brown, and daughters Sophia and Lucia. Steve Langan's most recent collection of poems, published in Fine Arts Letterpress and Trade Editions, is What It Looks Like, How It Flies, the debut publication of Gibraltar Editions. He is also the author of Freezing, Notes on Exile and Other Poems, and Meet Me at the Happy Bar. Langan teaches at the UNO MFA in Writing Program and in the English Department, and he's the founder and director of the Seven Doctors Project, a Nebraska Writers Collective Program. So where do we start? I feel like a, I feel like a reading is the, is the first place to start. What should we do? Should, Brittany, I think ladies first. Okay. I, I, I think we'd love to hear a poem. Yeah, okay. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to D.C., and... Um, so I'm, I'm going to give a poster presentation and possibly a reading within that poster presentation to some legislators and representatives. Um, and I'm going to, basically, I pursued a project a couple years ago, or actually last year, um, regarding the nature of mysticism and art and how mysticism and art are connected in the ways of how how we're inspired, how um, artists are inspired, and how mystics are inspired, and how art is um, that there's this there's this need and this goal for art to to portray the unknown and the divine of some way. Um, so uh, just a little bit about this poem. Um, it's inspired by the uh, Anchoritic desert mothers and fathers who would basically go out to the desert. Um, in, in the intense heat and in the atten- intense cold of the night in order to find a portrait of God, um, whether it be a literal sign from God or a figurative one. Um, but a lot of these um, anchorites 
which it, it's really interesting because a lot of them actually were artists themselves, poets, and also um, visual artists. But um, they use their art to try to connect with some sort of divine source. And so that's what this poem sort of plays from. And then also um, it questions this whole possibility of the soul being, being the source of divine um, within everybody. Yeah, this one's titled Ode to the Desert. They entered you to preserve your namesake, to desert, to abandon or bury themselves in your sand whirlwinds and walls and columns, to find the mirage asleep beneath their skulls. Each of your granules is a birthmark, exposing the fear to meet invisible portraits, a reminder, an intense knowing that the inner world remains deprived. Oh, dustful, featureless wasteland, you reflect an altered timeline, a Mother Earth whose patience would have given birth to forests. Instead, her aeolian breaths gives birth to you, your alien ravens, a prismatic atmosphere destined to conjure diamond fantasies and airy banquets. You were meant to be forgotten, a cemetery for a creator in the sky to bury his mistakes. Lone water hibernates within the succulent's drum, or binds the night jars to crescent dunes' last dewdrops, or is trapped in a thorny prison waiting to nourish a camel. Thank you so much. So I want to ask you all this question, and I'll probably start with Brittany for reasons that will become obvious, but I want to ask why does the word poetry stir such a feeling of anxiety in so many people? And I just want to start with Brittany because you are the old market poet. So you interact with the public in very visible ways. And you may have a direct experience of how people respond to your offering mm -hmm. of being a poet in their experience. But I, So we'll start with you, but I, I want to throw that out to, to everyone else here too. Yeah, so um, I think, honestly, poetry probably still stirs a little bit of anxiety within myself. Um, and, and being called a poet in some ways actually does too, um, because it's just, it's such a grandiose term to call someone. And um, I don't know, I, I mean, I don't mind the term, I don't, I don't mind being called a poet, um, but it's just, there's a heavy burden, there's a burden there. And I think that a lot of it has to do with just, you know, there's, there's limited understanding in what poetry is, um, and even more so, there's limited understanding in what poetry can do. And um, a lot of people, when they hear the word poetry, they're thinking about they're thinking about the you know the greats of the you know the the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, and that's just not what poetry is nowadays. I mean, and I think the goal um, I think the goal still has remained the same throughout time for for poets. I mean, it's gone from um, you know the bards singing the Homer's Odyssey um, to more personalized experiences. And words, words themselves, they just, they carry so much meaning. And being faced with a word that can mean something in a poem, but means something completely different to you is a very daunting and, and anxiety-ridden experience. Um, I think... So a lot of what I do in the old market is I'm trying my my best to bring poetry 
to people who would who would have an, an, an anxious experience reading poetry otherwise. And um, a lot of what I do is I cater to someone um, who doesn't understand poetry, but who wants to, who needs something conveyed that they otherwise can't convey themselves in, in another medium or even in poetry itself. And so um, I think probably that's one of the ways that I try to relieve the anxiety of a lot of people that I encounter because they are getting a poem that is 100% catered to how they want it and and how and what they want to read. I mean, they're not telling me the words to write and they're not telling me, um, you know, they're, they're not going line by line, write this, write that. They're telling me their experiences and I'm turning it into a form of art that they can understand. Yeah, I, I think poetry, it's kind of been butchered in the last 100, 150 years, uh, taken over mainly by critics and people who insist that um, poetry needs to be interpreted like a riddle um, so that the critic themselves, I think, are, can feel smarter. Um, I think there have been a lot of beautiful, wonderful uh, poets writing great work that tells stories, but doesn't need to be interpreted through a critic. And I think in, especially early 1900s uh, to, to late 1900, or not 19, uh, yeah, but just just really got butchered. <laughs> uh, I, one of my favorite quotes was from Ted Kuzer when he was just uh, made United States Poet Laureate, was giving a talk at the Omaha Press Club and referred to T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound as the Hiroshima and Nagasaki of American poetry, <laughs> um, seeing as they took, I mean, it was their poetry and how it had, uh, you know, became seen as the American poetry of the time, uh, but was very hard to interpret and get into. And that kind of ended up being the kind of poetry that won awards, that won accolades, um, and that changed how poetry is viewed rather than a poetry from you know older times of telling histories telling stories in in a language that people spoke changed into something that we were supposed to see as smarter than us you know even even Shakespeare um, uh, who was a brilliant wonderful poet doing complex things with words but those words were still at their time aimed at the audience of the day uh, the you know, the people, the masses. Um, but now, you know, we see it as 400-year-old's language, so it seems incomprehensible to us, you know, when you first come across it. But at the time, it was much more accessible. Uh, I think the Shakespeare of his time was, you know, would be similar to the Todd Robinson in, in how people would, would be able to get into the poems and all. But in 400 years, Todd Robinson's going to be a mystery. <laughs> I, sh- I certainly hope not. <laughs> that would be four so Four months. Sad. I think about my lifespan is four months. <laughs> I, I second what they've said. I third, I suppose, what they've said. But um, on the other side, from this fear that people have that they're not smart enough, they've been trained to believe that you need a certain education to understand it. The opposite side of that spectrum, I think it's been ruined by Hallmark cards. I think they think <laughs> yeah. it's um, they think it's treacly, that it's syrupy sweet, that it's something grandmothers you know write, or that it should be centered and flowery. And and uh, of course, uh, poems can be either incredibly hyper educated and and uh, obscure, or they can be sentimental and and um, 
um, sort of goofy or what have you, but obviously there can be anything in between. And I think all of us, our mission is to um, educate people into the many possibilities, just like there's an infinitude of musical forms and art forms and et cetera, uh, any genre. The uh, same is true of poetry. There's an audience for every, every uh, iota of the form. So... This speech is my recital. I think it's very vital to rock around. That's right. On top. It's tricky. It's so tight. Here we go. It's tricky to rock around, to rock around. That's right. On time. It's tricky. It's tricky. It's tricky. It's tricky. It's tricky. It's tricky. It's tricky to rock around, to rock around. That's right. On time. It's tricky. It's tricky. It's tricky. It's tricky. It's tricky. I met this little girly. Her hair was kind of curly. Went to her house and bust her out. I had to leave real early. Say is please me or spend some time in rock around. I said it's not that easy. Brittany, you said that poetry can convey something that cannot otherwise be conveyed. Mm-hmm. And so that makes me wonder then is that one role that poetry can play for our communities and our community well being, uh, as, as well as any other role? And I'm mm-hmm. curious about what those roles for poetry could be. And in particular, I'm interested in, in perhaps, whether it's a subgenre, I don't know, but slam poetry and, and what that means to community too. I mean, they're really, I'm with the people who say there's really no such thing as slam poetry, that there are poetry slams, which is a format for poetry, similar to an open mic, but with uh, scoring involved in a ludicrous gimmick. Um, but there, there is a certain kind of narrative uh, style of poetry and a certain kind of performance that we that we look at as slam poetry and I think it is it is something that for the most part is a force of good in the world in that it um, shows people that anybody can with with a little bit of practice write a poem that's worth hearing that's worth listening to um, that's worth sharing and it's you know the poetry slam itself puts a fun format to it. Um, and I, I think what, what what the poetry slam has done is given a lot of people a more acceptable American form to share their poems because, of course, it's a competition. The competition is a gimmick, but it's still something that is appealing to the audiences as a show, as a form of entertainment. Um, and so it'll bring out people to a poetry reading that wouldn't no- wouldn't have gone before mm-hmm. for most poetry readings. Um, and, and I think it's kind of, it, it's basically a poetry slam is, a, is the gateway drug to harder and harder forms of literature ultimately. So it, you know, gets people in, they find they like it. And next thing you know, they'll be at, you know, go to UNO for a reading, go to UNL for a reading um, and try different, different kinds of poetry. You know, a lot of people who've come up in local, uh, you know, the poetry slam scene have gone on to get MFAs. We've got a ton of them, uh, it seems, these days. So it's, it is it is a good way of getting people into poetry. Um, it's In some ways, it's a beginner's way, but in others, you'll see people doing really complex uh, uh, kinds of poetry that is just fun, fun to watch. Yeah, the the thing about slam poetry, um, just to build off of that really quick, 
I like the performative aspect of it and how you're you're sort of combining um, theater with poetry in some ways. It's a little less formal than that, but it's um, but but there is this there is this interactive component that maybe a, another poetry reading doesn't necessarily have. Poetry allows us to to let people know that this is our experience and this is how we live life, and and they they are able to get into our shoes. Um, and we, I mean, us poets, we also desire to get into the shoes of other people, which is, I think, another reason why we write poetry. Well, you know, anyone here knows that um, poetry forms communities. Um, we have a similar um, way of looking at the world, looking at it a little slant. Um, we gather for slams. We gather in classrooms. We gather at readings. Um, obviously, writing can be a really solitary art, um, you're working alone. You're not always sharing your work. You've got the usual kind of weird blend of egomania and insecurity, and it can be a little, for all the richness of it and wonder, um, there can be neuroses involved too, but the community aspect building, the community building aspect is um, is the part of the richness. It's the harvesting. You know, you've, you've been sort of sowing your strophes, your stanzas, et cetera, and uh, then you get to gather and share and listen and learn. I was jotting down some of Brittany's lines and I was so moved and touched by them. And, and each one sort of ignites something in me that otherwise would have been dormant. So, and I feel like that's what happens in Louder Than a Bomb. It's what happens mm-hmm. in a classroom. Um, again and again, we just set off these sort of explosions of wonder in each other. And um, that's something that you can't commodify. You're not gonna get in a pill. You're not going to get from a sport, well, maybe a sporting event or some way, but this is a deeper, older sort of nerve ending. And um, again, I maybe I echo Brittany's sort of new age sort of spin there, but I, I just feel like um, it's an ancient and mysterious art form, although it can be dressed up in contemporary shapes. Um, it really just tickles the soul somehow. Mm-hmm. I hate using that word soul when I talk about poetry. <laughs> it's really a overused expression. It's easy to mock, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, Jane Hirschfeld said poetry is the intensification and magnification of being and not to be too grandiose about it. But um, this this is in many ways, for, if, in my experience, is kind of my deepest and best and smartest and truest self. Well, at that juncture, I think I'm going to ask Matt to magnify ourselves <laughs> with some reading. And just before you read, we've just mentioned Louder Than a Bomb, and I would be delighted if you would just mention, maybe explain what Louder Than a Bomb is. Uh, Louder Than a Bomb is a high school and junior high poetry festival where teams of poets represent their school, um, have a competition uh, similar to a basketball game, except involving a poetry reading. Um, and it's one of those things that sounds kind of bizarre and hard to imagine, um, but you go in and um, see these poets. They're young. Uh, they shouldn't be able to write as well as they are, but they've been working on it You know, a good part of the school year uh, to put these pieces together, giving their worldview, um, saying what's important to them and what's interesting to them in a really amazing way. Um, we, you know, the Louder Than a Bomb, they work with a coach as well as a teacher at the school and, you know, form together as a team and are doing poems by themselves on stage. And sometimes there's four people on stage working on a poem that they choreographed the writing and the delivery of it together. And it is 
uh, it's a high energy poetry. Uh, this poem, uh, editor of Omaha Magazine asked me to write a poem uh, about Omaha, and I think he expected something a little different. I'm more, I'm, I'm kind of known for for funnier uh, kinds of poems, and uh, this just, you know, the poem writes the poem writes itself, and it usually goes its own direction, and so. I tried to make it funny, and all the funny lines got cut. So, what can you do? But, oh, Domaha. The city is river, is hills, is slopes, is creek beds. The promise that if you can hop a river who's strong as anything on this muscle-bound earth, that it's got to be worth it. The city is the fruit of the ferry, the bridge, the rails and the ties. This campsite turned settlement, turned quilt work of neighborhoods. Downtown bolted down to what rock beds deep under floodplains silt. The city is the river, is the hills. You, in your patches fabric, forget that. Think you were the zoo, the fort, the Reuben sandwich, the airbase, market, Boys Town, campus, 10th, 24th, 72nd, 208th streets. Lines and landscaping. You are what was here first. You are that water dragon roaring across this continent from sulfur springs to gulf. That river of whatever name you have for it in whatever language your mouth shapes. What was here before buffalo hunts. Before trading posts. Before Jefferson. Before Mormons. Before Standing Bear's words about the color of his blood. Before meatpacking plants, short-lived state capital, before a mob flung ropes over Harney Street lampposts, before Jobbers Canyon in Union Station, baseball games and TV dinners, before President Ford and Malcolm X, before prairie turned cornfield, turned houses, turned bowling alley slash concert venue, turned superstore, a few hundred neighborhoods gathered under one city's name, you Bible verses stanzas, movements. You don't stand on your own. You are all part of this artwork because you, in yourself, in your forebears, came across this impossible river, found a spot in hillside, creek bed, floodplain. You, brothers and sisters who rarely meet. You, division of acres and enclaves. Your boundaries don't mean a thing to the river, to the hills to the slopes, to the creek beds, to the promise, to all there is which welcomes you together here. I was, that one was, it was, it was a lot of fun to write, just kind of looking, looking through Omaha history, thinking about the things in Omaha that mean something uh, to me. It was, it was much longer, but kind of had to get cut or it, it, it gets a little tough. Um, um, but it, it was, I mean, it's a lot of fun to write a poem about, you know, the city you grow up in or the area you grow up in or even just the house you grow up in. Um, it's kind of one of the basic writing prompts. Uh, so all of you at home, write that poem right now. Um, if, it's, if it's a podcast, you can pause it. But otherwise, I guess you should start in about you know, a little bit when this is over. Up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie to beat. 
Thank you, Matt. That was absolutely delightful. Uh, Matt, you said something that uh, struck me, and um, of course I will butcher exactly where this came from. I think it was Oscar Wilde who said something somewhere about um, when asked, what, what did you do today? And he said, well, this morning I, I took out a comma. Well, what did you do this afternoon? Well, I, I put the comma back. You know, we have this somewhat um, maybe stereotypical image of a poet as this uh, dilettante, this, uh, you know, sort of bonhomie uh, character who's just, uh, um, you know, getting about town. And yet poetry, I think, can be hard work. And, and you alluded to this a little bit by talking about how you thought Ota Omaha was going to go in a particular direction, certainly possibly a, a comedic one. And yet, what's the expression? You have to kill your babies. You you had to get rid of lines. You had to allow this poem to shape itself. And so I, I just want to invite you uh, all to maybe reflect upon the hard work of poetry. Yeah, I, I think poetry is hard work. And the, and the best poems look like they come off the top of someone's head. But in reality, they've probably taken hours and hours and hours of, of steady work and editing. Um it is tough. One of the lessons I learned early on was, you know, I would start a poem with a line in my head. I would write that poem, and at the end, the line you started with sticks out. And when I was a young writer, I would still keep it in because, gosh darn it, that's what started the poem. Um, but I've, you know, I've learned since that um, that's you know, my waking brain or my whatever intellectual mind telling me the poem's supposed to be this, it should be this, this, and this. And I think what I've learned more and more is that my my brain is stupid. But my subconscious mind, the you know, the part that throws dreams at you and does all that work, that sucker's pretty brilliant. And I need to shut up listening to myself and listen to that and let it guide the poems. I mean, I can't think of a time when uh, my intellectual brain has been right in an argument about a poem. Yeah, you know, in the first flush of making, it feels like um, you're like Prometheus and you're bringing fire to the mortals and you've made this glorious product that will, you know, uh, unmake the world and or heal it. And you just have no critical sense of it. Um, but as Ted Kuzer says, uh, in time, fungus starts to grow on it. And uh, I find I often write that new draft and I'm, I'm just, you know, in love with myself all over again. I print it up and I go to read it to my wife and I start reading it out loud. And on line three, I just go, I hate myself. I'm a fool. You know, why do I even do this? So it's strange. You know, there's a couple different layers of consciousness at work, that sort of trance state that Matt alluded to. And then that cool calculating person, the accountant poet, you know, who who, uh, who maybe can come back later and uh, trim back the excesses, yeah. you know, the youthful exuberance. You need both, of course, right? I mean, you've got to... You've got to suspend your disbelief enough to make something happen. It hasn't happened, but uh, if you want it to be, to sing, to have the right rhythm, to not have a dull note, um, you've got to come back to it. And usually that means taking some time, letting it sit, uh, letting it be a little fallow for a while, um, coming back to it later. So, Writing a poem is hard, and, um, and editing it is even harder. And... It's also a pain in the butt to keep track of your edits. It's hard to know when you're done with the editing process. And I think that's probably the most frustrating part of writing poetry and editing it. If I can add just one of the things that's actually helped me with my writing is Poetry Slam. That format of performing a poem and delivering it makes me take poems and try to memorize them or at least get really comfortable with them. And that process of memorizing a poem 
means I'm taking so much more time. So I'm spending a week reading this poem over and over, realizing, you know, as I hear it out loud, what works and what's not. And so even that Odoma was published in the magazine. It's, there are lines that are changed now because I just was memorizing it, uh, you know, last month. I'm expressing with my full capabilities And now I'm living in correctional facilities Cause some don't agree with how I do this I get straight and meditate like a Buddhist I'm dropping flavor, my behavior is hereditary But my technique is very necessary Blame it on Ice Cube Because it's said it get funky When you got a subject and a predicate Add it on a dope beat And it'll make you think Some suckers just tickle me Pink to my stomach Cause they don't flow like this one You know what? I won't hesitate to this one or two before I'm through So don't try to sing this Some drop science Well, I'm dropping English Even if yellow Makes it a cappella. I still express you, I don't smoke weed or sex Cause it's known to give a brother brain damage And brain damage on the mic don't manage nothing But making a sucker in you equal Don't be another sequel Todd Robinson, please My poems um, are always kind of rooted in my experience I can't shake that autobiographical impulse um call it narcissism call it deep um psychological need but that's my story and i don't know if it's ever going to change but uh this one um come is rooted in an experience i had this summer a dear friend of mine was going through a major depression and uh to help him i took him to see these um tibetan monks um dump the sand mandala they'd been working on in the river as a sort of a ceremony of uh of uh, impermanence so i thought the beauty of it and the sense that all things must pass would kind of help him and and it was such an unforgettable experience you know a poem was, seems inevitable so it's called mandala monks wear sensible shoes and why wouldn't they chained to dying animals just like the rest of us charioteers under meth white skies while channelized waters brood under a bridge named after bob carey whom I happened to admire very much, though when we met in a bland kitchen, he didn't seem so magnetic. The bridge bobs us a bit, monks in sandals and socks or beat-up tennies chant and shake bells the color of henna over an effluviated waterway with concrete banks in September. Dozens snap selfies as these men who have nothing release it all in the form of a sachet of colored sand which ashes its way down to join the river on the way to Kansas City and holy points beyond. They are fat or short or mustachioed like so many spiritual beings, smiling then waving goodbye. Wait, I ask one, please bless my friend, he is very sad. They can't know how much he hates himself, but he gets a blessing and pep talk. When you are sad, everyone around you is sad. People who live in deserts see beauty. Women in war cut their breasts to feed babies' blood. They climb into a van and float on radial tires to Cincinnati or somewhere equally enlightened, while we are left to roll back to uncomfortable homes in a comfortable car, with silence and memory for once letting hope do the talking, our sins sensibly forgiven, nothing in the mirror but a river of road unspooling 
the future a bell that won't stop ringing. Uh, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been saved by poetry or a poem? Yes, more than once. I think that is both an acute and a chronic um, salvation. Um, so a good example, maybe one of us shared with you personally, Stuart, but when I was in college, I was working at Long John Silver's. I went to Creighton, but I lived in my mom's basement. I was full of self-pity and shame, and I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. Um, hated my job, hated myself, and uh, I came across in a class, um, Jim Daniels, Short Order Cook, and in which this guy has this really big order to cook 30 cheeseburgers and 30 fries, and it seems like this insurmountable task, but he cooks them. <laughs> and uh, in the end, he sort of has this chant, pressure, responsibility, success, 30 cheeseburgers and 30 fries. And not only did that show me, maybe for the first time, that poetry could truly address any topic in any, any tone, any manner, but it showed me that my um, life was worth living and that my concerns were worth writing about. The book by the uh, deceased American poet uh, Larry Levis, he was only 50 when he died, it's called Winter Stars. I found that and it was a repository for all of the emotion, uh, pathos and uh, uh, wonderment and, and uh, reactions to uh, deep uh, wounds uh, that American uh, lads of a certain age and a certain time, at least in the neighborhood where I was raised, aren't supposed to have. So the idea of being able to say what's being felt and what's being thought uh, in, in poetic form, which he does so beautifully in all of those poems, and the entire collection is moving. It's probably the most thumbed through book that, that I have. Uh, was absolutely liberating. I just love any any poem that alludes to some sort of human perseverance in one way or another, and I love I love books any any sort of literature that does that. Steve, could I ask you to offer us some readings and uh, maybe explain the poems you've selected, and um, and then we'd love to hear them. Thank you, Stuart. I want to read a couple of poems from this collection of mine that was put together by Gibraltar Editions as their debut collection uh, just recently, 2015, and then a, a newer poem. I've been thinking a lot about the the daydream and the, and the importance of the daydream uh, to me as a person. There was a time when I was working in corporate America, and it seems uh, I check out about every day at 3.30 to have a little daydream and a stare at the wall. And if you're in a cubicle among, you know, 300 people in cubicles, 
somebody will notice that that's a little strange because we're supposed to be working. And uh, one of the poems that is a kind of daydream uh, that starts the book is uh, called Assembly. As carefully, let's say, as mouthing a hymn to deaf children, this is how we assemble for the day. A polychromic sunrise, to be sure, but not for the sun, old one head, one face, for you and your stereo mind. Or ask Miss Wonderment dressed in maize, poppy seeds in her hair, polishing the metals, oiling the woods, whistling our anthem. Repeat after me, over the traffic's inconsequentiality, the second and third verses from the beginning. Ding-dong. That's the church bell shattering the wind. She prayed to her God, and he prayed to his. It's half past. The wounded recorder overwhelms commonplace birds content to circle the churches on church row. Enter, enter, and take some time to examine the altar, to walk the maze of reflection, and bow to the military birds and our seal of plenty. One of the poems that I love, uh, and I think about it all the time, is is Emily Dickinson's poem about the daydream and uh, about the imagination. Uh, she says, To make a prairie, it takes a clover and one bee, one clover and a bee and a reverie. The reverie alone will do if bees are few. I'm all for the reverie. I'm all for the real, too. I wrote this poem not long ago, several days ago, I suppose, and, and uh, who knows. I'll just test it out on you, Stuart. You can tell me what I should do next. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going in and out of time, and, and you know, just like uh, I suppose, I think we have more of an affinity with a painter uh, uh, than we do with a novelist. I'm talking about poets. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so, so the the game, for lack of a better word, within this poem, as far as I can see it, it's my own creation. We're doomed if we try to be connoisseurs of our own work. But the game that's being played, I suppose, is how to go in and out of time in a lyric poem, it may be in a more abrupt way than sometimes I have. And it's called Memories of Starlight on a Clear Night. Every American accent arcs toward hopelessness, she said the question mark you place at the end of your forced desire. Insignias have not betrayed the fact, nor have emblems of your expanding belief, nonetheless, in beauty. Alone on the mountaintop, years later, and on the wasted away to scrub prairie, years before, I think she was talking about the elemental starshine we enjoyed arm in arm. Then we had to return home to make money. Did you pay the bills, honey? What stood in for starshine, the best we could find, Monday through Friday, was jocularity, I realize now, and other forms of self-effacement, including our setbacks and minor sufferings, carefully chronicled, ache by ache. Our bond was our word, and giving my word made me uneasy, and my fear then was absolute. Also, we were wild as animals all weekend, shirtless and shoeless, talkative then mute, clearly and desperately in love, even forgiven. And for what? 
So I want to ask us what what poem should everybody be reading? By everybody, I mean you know the the, the public. What does the public need to read? especially perhaps given contemporary times. But it, it needn't be that. Maybe it's just to restore us to a sense of sanity or an appreciation of beauty. Anyway, I'm open to suggestions. I believe Marion may have brought in a poem that she might read. I'm going to try and read this, but it makes me really emotional. This is St. Francis and the Sow by Galway Cannell. The bud stands for all things even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch blessings of earth on the sow, and the sow began remembering all down her thick length, from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart, to the sheer blue milk and dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the 14 teats into the 14 mouths, sucking and blowing beneath them the long, perfect loveliness of sow. Thank you, Marion. What should we be reading? I've got one. I'll pounce. Um, very short one, Where Knock is Open Wide by Theodore Rutke. A kitten can bite with his feet. Papa and Mama have more teeth. Sit and play under the rocker until the cows all have puppies. His ears haven't time. Sing me a sleep song, please. A real hurt is soft. Once upon a tree, I came across a time. It wasn't even as a ghoulie in a dream. You know, I think one of the things that differentiates the... Uh poet and artist from, from uh, you know, uh, other folks, is this fascination, I don't think it's macabre, I think it's natural, uh, with death, with mortality, memento mori, uh, remember we all must die. One of the great poems and the poem that I, th- I think everyone should read is uh, uh, W.H. Auden's uh, poem about W.B. Yeats, In Memory of W.B. Yeats. One of the astonishing things about this this poem, and there's, I mean, every line is beautiful. There's this transition that he makes between the second and third stanza. He says, The death of the poet was kept from his poems, but for him, it was his last afternoon as himself. <laughs> One of the interesting things about this poem is that Auden, the poet, never mentions himself, never speaks from the I position through this probably 80-line poem in three different sections. The ending stanza, let me just give it away uh, because it's beautiful. Uh, in, in the third section, he just outwardly rhymes. He's earned the right, you know? I mean, he says, In the deserts of the heart, let the healing fountain start. In the prison of his days... Teach the free man how to praise. 
in this honoring, I'm going to be, you know, uh, uh, kind of simplistic in my summarizing, but this honoring of person, this honoring of deceased, this honoring of conditions, this honoring of uh, our people, and not just our people, but but uh, people, this validation, let's say, uh, that's honest and real, is so uh, lacking in our cultural moment and so necessary, and it's something that poetry provides. Another of our great poets, uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, according to his translator Stephen Mitchell, will praise and lament at the same time. That melancholy you mentioned earlier, fusing that melancholy to a form of praise. Oftentimes in literature, it's the thing and its opposite. But what, So why couldn't melancholy and uh, hopefulness or lament and praise be fused together? Why do these emotional conditions... Uh, in our culture, why are these emotional conditions often kept separate in our entertainment? Why can't we just put them together as they naturally occur? Um, Steve's kind of talking about these these um, feelings, these ideas that we think are contrary about sort of finding the synthesis between them. And what I like about that Rutherke poem is it sort of does the same thing. You know, it says a kitten can bite with his feet. And he's getting into this this childlike point of view where something sharp, whether it's, um, he doesn't differentiate claws and teeth. Each can harm you, right? And so there's something magical in saying a kitten can bite with his feet, right? It's all transposed, these different parts or, or of a oneness. And then he says, Papa and Mama have more teeth. And I love this too, because the implication is that I mean, you think a kitten can bite <laughs> the parents. Uh, wow, they got a lot more weapons. And I, but he doesn't say it's so, right? He kind of comes at it a little sideways. And, and then he sort of says, uh, until the cows all have puppies. And there's that thing happening again. Um, we, we would call a cow's offspring calves, but a child doesn't have that whole vocabulary. And something sort of wondrous happens when we call a cow's offspring a puppy. It sweetens it. And then, and then he goes on with, I think, such a devastating line, um, a real hurt is soft. And I think um, that line just haunts me. Uh, you know, it's because, uh, well, there's, there's beauty in it in the sense that um, we're talking about subtlety. We're talking about a range of feeling and a resonance that might not be always obvious, but that also the things that sort of stain our memory or that... Um, plague us they're not necessarily the big traumas you know they can be the small ones the subtleties and and i think uh, that auden poem speaks to that as well the real hurt is soft thanks ted that one's going to echo for a few more centuries um i think arthur rambeau's season in hell probably follows in line with this theme because um it basically describes the world and in your own reality as as hell and how hell is hell is perceived as um, the way the way the way you make it. Um, in a lot of those poems, the beautiful and the monstrous are side by side, and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between them. But yeah, so that that would be my recommended collection of poetry for everybody. <laughs> Aye. 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 
would you give to novice poets or perhaps poets who are just stuck somewhere what advice would you give them to um, unleash the muses well I think uh, it's always good to read you learn you learn ways uh, to transmute experience into poetry you learn techniques that you can uh, steal <laughs> um, you find out what you like what you value so always good to read and then I think free writing you know it's so simple that we often ignore it but I think just give yourself 20 minutes a day to just sort of uh, spill your stream of consciousness onto a page perhaps later you can form that into you know, specific uh, genre, specific piece with a specific aim. But even in that sort of unconscious ramble of your thought line, um, you're going to amaze yourself at some point. It may not be the first day, the first minute, but you do 20 minutes a day for a week. And I guarantee you that you'll have several lines, if not several pages that, um, that shock you with their beauty with their strangeness with their insight with their heartbreak so uh, we begin there read and write um for poets that are stuck i would just recommend that um it's okay to be stuck if you have other pursuits if you have other artistic interests and passions sometimes pursuing those and delving into those a little bit can help you gain that inspiration back yeah, we have a job that we uh, have to wait to come to us, you know, oftentimes. And I've said that before in public settings and, and felt like people might rush to clamp my throat. But the, but the, uh, the, the waiting for that line that you have to scribble down in the supermarket, pull over to the curb to write down, uh, th- that's something that over the, the years I've, I've done that's my uh, modus operandi, and that means that for a long time you're doing nothing, and that's okay, too. Uh, one of the things we just talked about in the classroom is we're reading Natalie Diaz's book, When My Brother Was an Aztec. It's about her brother's addiction. It's about a lot of things. It's about the imagination. Is this idea of, uh, as my teacher's teacher uh, said to her when she was writing abstractly, you've got to give in to the destructiveness of the subject. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure what that meant. And, and 
the news that was delivered from Donald Justice to Jory Graham, who related that to our class, was uh, uh, that she didn't either, and that it came to her. And it's one of those things that comes to you and that it leaves. But the idea that the poem has a mission. Oftentimes the author, the poet, the artist has an agenda. And I think that's one of the things that can intrude on the experience of making the poem, and especially reading it. The poem wants to go somewhere. The piece of art wants to go somewhere. And giving in to that is such a valuable skill. I think it is a skill. I think it is something that we have to learn by unlearning all of the ways that that agenda wants to, I'll use the word, intrude. John Berryman said to write 75 lines a day. That's the other side. Really squeeze the grape. One of the many ways that I came to appreciate you, Steve, was, of course, through Seven Doctors Project. Mm. And I think it's worth explaining what that is because it's such an interesting, has a great genesis story. And I think it has relevance uh, beyond our particular geographical boundaries. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And uh, it's great to have you at the table. And we really get to know the human beings uh, who are with us in a, in a brief amount of time. It's a vulnerability-making exercise, yes. Going strong, we're part of the Nebraska Writers Collective, the 501c3. And we started in 2008 with a vulnerable population. We don't think of them that way. We started with mid-career physicians who are claiming job dissatisfaction or burnout. <laughs> and the approach to this that I took had a little bit of... Uh, uh, sadism to it, uh, because I didn't want to make the uh, work easy. They don't make it so easy for us when we go into their offices all the, uh, you know, a lot of the time, right? And like a lot of other people, I have a bit of a, a fear of the physician. This was my way to get him and her back. And uh, I didn't know that I'd end up through the project and, and through the colleagues who helped me. I didn't know I'd end up helping them. And one of the factors there, Stuart, was we gave them a little bit of access for the first time in a while, or maybe the first time. We gave them a little bit of an access to the imagination. We gave them a little ping to that side of the brain. We could have done it in a lot of different ways. We could have done it through uh, music or, or art or uh, dance. And, you know, all of those things take more training than it takes to, to write something. We all use the language. It's one of the, it's one of the uh, drawbacks and it's one of the challenges for the writer, right? We're using the same materials that everybody else uses. But it's a good starting place. So we had everybody start writing a poem, a piece of short fiction, and a piece of creative nonfiction all in three weeks' time. And we made it rigorous. And these are people who responded to rigor. In the second session, we included the university lawyer, started adding members of the community you know, people who said, put me in coach, and, and uh, they were on the list. And we started to mold these different sessions of uh, a bunch of disparate uh, characters and to see what would happen. And what happened was people were doing some, to my ear and to my eye, pretty darn good work. And also building a kind of community, which was an unexpected uh, byproduct of the work. Thank you all very much for being here. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thanks, buddy. That was fun. That's the end of this week's show. 
The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>